Perimeter Church podcast. How has the terrible violence done to Emmanuel AME in Charleston affected you? How has their response affected you? Their bold expression of their identity in Christ in the face of their enemy will reverberate far beyond their walls. How would you have responded? Pastor of Local Discipleship Ryan Brown finishes the series, The Church, Aspects of the Christian Community, with this message entitled, Who Are We?, which covers 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Thank you for joining us today. I'm going to ask Ryan to uh, come up. Ryan Brown, I want to introduce him before he preaches. Uh, if you're new with us, we're in a series right now, which is Young Leader Series that we do every summer. And uh, this year we're bringing in uh, those that have been raised up in our church right here uh, at Perimeter and ask them to come back and to preach for us. But we didn't have to ask Ryan to, to come back because we hired him. And uh, we said, we got we to gotta have this young man. And he's working in our discipleship ministry right now. Very thankful for what he's done. I've been here about a year now, I guess about a year. Um, many of you may remember Cal and Debbie Brown, uh, his parents. Uh, they were in the church before he was born. And then he's been raised here throughout those years. And uh, then went off to seminary. In fact, rather than me tell you all the details, if you look in the bulletin uh, on the back side of the outline, you will see... Uh, a biographical sketch and his education and all that. Marianne is sweet, wonderful wife and her education. But uh, we have been blessed to have Ryan to be here. And I had the privilege of hearing the first sermon. And I know this, uh, when I say first sermon, the nine o'clock, I, I know this, you've been coming to this series, you know you've been hearing some good, good leaders. And uh, we're excited about having you, Ryan. And uh, uh, Debbie worked on our staff. She's with the Lord now. She passed away uh, a few years ago now, five years ago, but uh, many of you might remember Cal uh, uh, and uh, Debbie from the years past, but this is their son, and we're grateful to have you here. I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll let him get it going. Father, thank you for the wonderful ministry that you have given to Ryan. Thank you for the uh, mature heart and life that you have placed in him over these short years, and we pray thanking you for his ministry among us now uh, as a uh, staff member of this church. Uh, but Lord, even as our preacher today, uh, use his words, uh, which are your words, uh, to transform our hearts, to give us hope and insight. And we thank you for him, and we pray in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I've uh, been praying for this opportunity, actually, for several years. Not, not necessarily the opportunity to preach, but the opportunity to stand in front of this church and say thank you. Randy said, you raised me. You really did. There are so many of you in here who have invested and poured into my life. Alongside my parents, you've been more parents and more parents. Perimeter School laid a foundation of faith in my life. Uh, man, I, I was watching Matt's story there. Uh, Steve Wiegand came and took me to baseball games. I can think of every stage in my life, and I could just list men and women who've invested in me. So, Perimeter Church, you have no idea how much you've ministered to me. And I also know that I have no idea how much some of you have done for me. I just can't tell you how thankful I am for you. It's a blessing 
absolute blessing to be here this morning, primarily because I get to say that. I love this church, and I'm so thankful for you. We've been in a series talking about uh, what the community of Christ looks like. What, what's the church supposed to be about? Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. But before we get there, a few years ago, there was a TV show on. Uh, it didn't do that well. It only made it two seasons before they cut it. It was called Revolution. And the show itself was, you know, so-so. Unless you really liked it, then it was great. Um, but the premise of the show is what was so fascinating to me. You see, the premise of the show was that the power goes out everywhere, all around the world, and there's literally no way to turn the power back on. And all the characters in the show have to figure out how to live in a world without power. No communication. Everything that we're used to is suddenly gone. How do they survive? You know, it kind of reverts to a bit of a survival of the fittest. There are factions and there's wars. I mean, it's kind of a mess. One of the characters, and they follow several characters, but one of the characters' name is Aaron. And before the power went out, he was a software engineer, software developer, multi-millionaire, married. The power goes out. Everything about who he was is gone. He needed power to have a life. He and his wife get disconnected somehow. He doesn't even know if she's still alive. And so we pick up the story with Aaron, who's essentially lost everything about his identity. And the question that the show asks to Aaron, and and really to every other character as you go through the series, is now that everything you're used to is gone, who are you? Who in the world are you? Now, many of us, to obviously a much lesser degree, because we haven't had global power outage yet, to my knowledge, many of us have had little tastes of a situation like that. A move, a job change, a new school, and suddenly everything's different. People don't know me here. People don't know my skills. They don't know my past. Who am I? We as a church are in a rapidly and constantly changing culture. And we are forced over and over and over again to ask, as the people of God, who in the world are we? When Peter's writing, he's writing to a church who's asking the exact same question. You see, when Peter's writing, there's been a great persecution in all of Christendom. People have to flee their homes. They're spread out all over the place. As a matter of fact, in the first couple of verses of 1 Peter, he calls it the dispersion. And then he names all these regions where Christians have gone. And so as this letter circulates from church to church to church, he's got something to say to people whose lives have been flipped upside down. They're in a new place. They don't know what it looks like. Some were, were Jewish and they know all the stories. Some have no clue they've been brought in. And they're learning what it looks like to actually be a Christian in a world that hates them. So as he's writing to them, he gives them an identity that can never change. He gives them the answer to the question, who am I, that is so solidly rooted in who God is that that question is answered for all of eternity. But not only does he give them that, that identity, he gives them a mission You see, it's really easy easy for us to look just like Aaron and say, this is what I do, therefore that's who I am. But God flips it around. He said, it's not that order. 
God says, this is who you are, and as a result of who you are, this is how you can live. When we get those orders switched, we live in constant identity crisis. When things change, we got nothing to hold on to. So listen, this is what Peter says to to the people of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation or when Christ returns. Having heard God's word, let's, let's pray real quick. Father, this is your word. It is truth. We need it. Change us, Lord, we ask by your spirit. Amen. God gives his people a common identity and a common mission. This common identity that it gives to his people is actually a corporate identity that everybody who's a follower of Christ shares in. Now, we're in a, we live in a very individualistic culture. And as a result of that, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our brain around what it looks like to have a corporate identity. We probably think of it best when we think about sports teams. When I tell you that I'm an Atlanta sports fan, for some of you, that means something. For some of you, you know, that means that I'm a very cynical person. (laughs) You know, it means that I've been disappointed over and over and over and over again, except once. You know that I have a hope that's just barely hanging on. <laughs> Actually, when, when I went to Georgia Southern University, uh, I, I really knew nothing about the athletics program there. I didn't know anything about football at Georgia Southern. But you can't be there very long without hearing about Georgia Southern football. They, they've got six national titles in football. I was brought in, I was discipled in the ways of Georgia Southern football by a few older guys. They showed me their VHS cassette of all of the greatest plays in Georgia Southern history, and they got me in. And what happened over time is instead of saying they, I started saying we when I watched the game. I have never put pads on in my life. I spend a lot of games on the couch with my heart racing, and that's about as much into it as I get. But you see what happens when we get into something like that, when we get so involved, it becomes who we are. I I started to get proud of those six national titles that I saw none of them happen or ever played in any of the games. (laughs) But that was my school. Those are my titles. You know, that's, that's what a corporate identity is like. And Peter is doing the same kind of thing, especially for those who are not of the people of Israel. Because suddenly the gospel has gone out to all nations. And as they're coming in, Peter's saying, hey... If you're with us, you can say we. And you can say we about our entire history. God has given his people an incredible identity. And some of you may have never heard it before. So Peter's saying, let me show you what it's like. Now, how do I know Peter's doing that? Well, it's interesting because there are probably seven, depending on how you count, at least seven statements of identity in the first three verses here. Statements of who God says his people are. 
And every single one of them is either a direct quote or a very close paraphrase to Exodus 19 or Isaiah 43. So what he's doing is he's saying to this people of God, this new people that's expanded to all nations, hey, this history, this is your history too. This is who you are. So I, I asked Randy last service, he, he didn't go for it, if I could have permission to have a seven-week sermon series for each of these identities. But, so we'll just have to fly through them instead. So Christian, follower of Jesus, who are you? He says that you are a chosen people. Now, he didn't say you're a choice people. As a matter of fact, when God calls the people of Israel, you see a picture of this in Deuteronomy 7. He says, it wasn't because you were the mightiest or the most in number that I set my love on you. He says, the reason I set my love on you is because I love you and I promised. So we heard so beautifully last week, if you're a follower of Christ, it's not because you were so good. It's because God chose to love you. It's because he did everything that we couldn't do to bring us to him. The passage says we're a royal priesthood. It could also be translated as a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means that we got royalty in our blood. It means that we are kids of the king. And not only are we kids of the king, but we're a priesthood, which means we can come with bold confidence before the throne of God because he has made it possible. We're a kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation. Holy means set apart. It means we are specially set apart as God's people, designated as his, not taken out of the world, but in the world in a way that reflects his character among the nations. We're a holy nation. We're a people belonging to God. It's interesting, these last two, uh, well, almost last two, in verse 10, These aren't from Exodus. These are from Hosea. These two titles. Now, Hosea was a prophet. And the way that his prophetic word went out was through his life. God told him to marry a prostitute. And he married her. And she was unfaithful over and over and over again. He had two children with her. The first children, God said, name him Lo-Ami. And the second child, name him Lo-Ruhama. Lo-Ami means not my people. Lo-Ruhama means no mercy. What God's saying through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel, because of your unfaithfulness, because you have rejected me as your God, you will no longer be my people, and you will no longer receive my mercy. As Peter uses it here, He's saying to the people of Israel who are now being drawn back in and to us who are never of the people of Israel who are now coming in, that was your name, but not anymore. You see, in Hosea, as God tells him this, you read, you don't get more than three verses before God says, but, but I'm going to give you a name change. Those who are not my people, you will be called my people again. And those who didn't receive my mercy, you will receive mercy, and you'll receive it through something that you never expect, through a Savior that's coming. The last thing he says is that we are sojourners and exiles. Your home, if you're a believer, is not a world filled with sin and death and loss and grieving. 
Your home is in the presence of your Father. On this earth, restored. There's no more sin or death or mourning or crying anymore because these former things have passed away. We're people who look forward with great hope to a home that God's going to bring us to here. Now, that's who we are, right? But if you're like me, you take one or two things in your life, things that you've done, things that have happened, things that people have said to you, and you make it the whole thing about you. We take these little things and we put them on like a scarlet letter. This is who I am. But I want you to know, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin and you've come to him in faith, you are not your grades, you are not your singleness, you're not your friends' opinions of you, you're not your boss's opinion of you, you're not the names that the bullies call you, you're not what your employees think of you, you're not your company's bottom line, you're not your sexual struggles, you're not your successes or your failures, you're not your weight, you're not your sin struggle, you're not your physical appearance, you are not your suffering or your grief, you're not your morality or your disability, you're not your depression, you are not your alcoholism, you are not your addictions. Now all of those things may be parts of your life. They may be real struggles, real challenges, real joys, real blessings, but they don't ultimately define you. God ultimately defines you. He gives you an identity. He says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You are the children of God whom he's rescued by his mercy. You are sinners saved by his amazing grace. You are his beloved, his bride, whom he gave up everything to get. You are made in his image and being conformed more and more into the image of his son every single day. He knows you, he loves you, he cares about you. He says that you are valuable. You are his treasure. Christian, that is who you are. You have a lot of voices coming at you, some from your own head, some from other people. But there is one voice that speaks truth into your life and, has never changed, and it never changes. And that identity survives even death. No matter what happens, what shakes up your life, what circumstances there are, this stands as true for you as the people of God and for me. That is an amazing grace. And you see, God says it's not all these things that you do that create who you are. It's me who creates who you are and gives you an identity. But as a result of that identity, when we don't have to claw and cling for what makes us who we are, when it's set upon us, we're, we're freed from a fixation on us. We're freed to actually look up and see that there's a hurting and broken world. And God calls us on mission because of who we are to reflect him in this world. And, and I think we can think of God's mission that he gives us, this corporate mission, in two ways. And we see it as Peter talks about it. One is a way that is attractive. It draws people in. You can almost think about a whirlpool as it draws things to the center. But it's also one that sends us out, sends us out to proclaim a message that we've been rescued. You know, it's really interesting 
All of those words of identity I mentioned come from mostly Exodus 19. Now, Exodus 19, this is a real tricky one for you, comes before Exodus 20. Glad we settled that. No, but what happens in Exodus 20? In Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. God begins giving his law. And the order is absolutely crucial. Because Exodus 1 through 19 is the story of God rescuing his people Israel out of slavery. And then giving them identity as his people. Before he ever gives them anything to do, he says, this is who you are. You don't do to get me. I got you. Now you can live in response. So that's what we see here. We have a common mission. We're to be an attractive community. We see that uh, really in verses 11 and 12. He, He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when he returns. The law of God in Exodus 20 kind of gives us a picture of what sin is. We know right from wrong in the law. The Ten Commandments are, are pretty straightforward. So fighting sin is part of being a people of God. But we get more than that. We get how God intends his community that he's rescued to live together. What does it look like to be a rescued people in community? It's attractive. Peter says we, that people who are not believers will see the way that you live and then glorify God. You live in a way that is so attractive that it draws people in. If last year, I guess it was a little over 12 months ago, uh, my wife and I were moving here. We lived in St. Louis, and we had a real estate agent. We were giving him a call uh, just to kind of see what the lay of the land was. Now, imagine, imagine if he said, Ryan, do we hold phones like this anymore? Like this. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, I have got this neighborhood that you would never believe. I mean, it is incredible. It's a perfect fit for you. I go, awesome. Well, what's, what's so great about it? He says, there is no theft in this neighborhood whatsoever. I say, oh, that's neat. Great track record. I bet they've got a good neighborhood watch program, probably gated community. Maybe they've got a guard or something. He said, no, no, it's not like that. I mean, this, this community cannot have theft. It's never happened, and it will never happen. I can't explain it. That's just, that's just the way it is. I'd be like, yeah, that sounds great. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a community where you just had zero fear of theft? Just no fear at all. Just all the anxieties. I mean, we don't think about it unless something happens to us most of the time. But it's just natural that you got to lock a door. It's natural that you don't leave things in the open. It's common that people buy a security system. We live with this subconscious, sometimes very in front of our conscience, fear of an intruder. All that's gone in that community. That would be the most highly demanded community in the world, probably. That's just one of the Ten Commandments. How attractive would it be to the people of God, or to the world, if the people of God lived according to his law. Never a fear or anxiety of theft. No jealousy, no turned stomach wondering what somebody thinks of you. No adultery. 
not even a fear or a thought of it, that community would look incredible. That's what we're called to. We're called to be a community that reflects God's character in the world in such a way that people look at that and say, that's what I want. Now, I know some of you here are going, okay, Ryan, that's nice. I've been thinking about this before, and you kind of sealed the deal. You Christians are the biggest hypocrites in the world. I've been to churches before, I've been around believers, and it doesn't look anything like that. As a matter of fact, I've been more hurt by people in the church than anywhere else. And you might be absolutely right. But I want to ask this question. What is a hypocrite? What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite's an actor. That's what the word means. A hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be something he's not. And you're right, the church is full of that. But I want to tell you, the people who really get it, the people who really understand the gospel, maybe, maybe they're not hypocrites. Why? Because the reason they're here, the reason I'm here, is because I don't have it all together. I'm a mess. A lot of us are a total mess. We struggle with all sorts of sin and addiction and hurt and hurting other people. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. The church is is full of sick people who need a savior, who need grace. We as Christians, we live as hypocrites when we pretend like that's not true. We live as hypocrites when we pretend that we've got it all together, that we don't need a savior that we don't need grace. That's why we've got to remember our identity. The only way we're going to be an attractive people is not if we're trying to show off by our goodness, but if we are so enamored with Christ and know his character that it just overflows from our lives. That's what makes us an attractive people. We live out God's mission by being that kind of community. But Peter also says we're proclaiming community. Now, I skipped over that one little phrase, but that's the phrase for the most of us that just pops out in the passage. It says, we are a people belonging to God that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Not only are we to draw people in, but we are to go out and proclaim. So what does it look like to be a proclaimer? Well, one, I think it's two things. The first, we've been doing this morning, is we proclaim the excellencies of him in worship. We are proclaiming his praises of how he's rescued us to one another every week. We get some great practice doing that here. So how do we live as God's proclaiming community? By showing up and singing his praises. By sharing stories of how he has worked in our lives. But it's also by going out, by proclaiming a story of rescue. You know, it's really interesting the way this is phrased here. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're proclaiming him. Him. When I was a high school student, I had some guys really pour into my life and invest in me Uh, specifically in the area of defending my faith. I got really into it. 
And those guys loved me, and they did it well. But there was something that I missed. It was that whole part about loving people. That's pretty important, especially when you're bringing a message of love. You see, what I wanted was to make sure everybody knew I was right. I wanted to make sure that people of another faith knew that I had a better, better logical basis for what I believed. Or people who had no belief that I had a better argument for belief. It was all about me. The message I was proclaiming was, you're wrong and I'm right. And that doesn't help anybody. You know, it can be so easy for us to get fixated on a cultural issue so tightly that we forget it's about Jesus. We get so fixated on this issue that all we care about is for them to know that we're right and they're wrong. But what is this passage calling? It's calling us to proclaim his excellencies and to do it in a really humbling way. Because the way this passage calls us to proclaim his excellencies is that we have to to admit that we lived in total darkness until he came and rescued us. The message that we tell isn't a message of I'm right and you're wrong. Now, there's, there's a place for those things, absolutely. But if we never humbly proclaim him, then we're missing the whole boat. We can tell a story. We can tell a story of our own rescue. That's a powerful story. It's a moving story. It's a story of love, and it comes out of an identity. It comes out of who we are. Not about the things that we've tried to build ourselves up to be. So what does a community look like that is so rooted in this identity that it's attractive to others and makes the gospel known? I think we've had an incredible picture this week in Charleston of that. Church, families, their world is thrown upside down this week by a heinous act of violence. Yesterday, if, if you looked at the news at all online, almost every major news website said, families forgive shooter. Families forgive shooter. There's a bond hearing held for this man. He was in prison. There's a TV screen. And they don't normally do this in a bond hearing, but they decided to do it this time. The families of the victims came forward. And one after another, they said, some things that are absolutely incredible. This man, Anthony Thompson, husband of 59-year-old Myra Thompson, who was killed, looks at the TV screen and says, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, to confess to give your life to the one that matters most, to Christ. Change your ways. Another came up and said, although my grandfather and other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and that their legacies will live in love, so hate won't win. And over and over and over again, these family members said, I forgive you and I'm praying that God will have mercy on you. 
How can they do that? How in the world can they do that? They've got an identity that not even death can take away. They trust that their loved ones have an identity that not even death could take away. And their forgiveness displays to the world on the front page of every single website that covers news, there is something different about these people. And it's attractive in a way that maybe we have never seen before. And not only that, but they are proclaiming love to the man who's expressed the most hate in the world to them. Amazing. And all of that can happen because of Jesus who did the same thing. The Son of God came and died. He was rejected by the Father so that we could be called children of God. He lived a perfect, holy life that didn't look like self-righteous arrogance. It looked like the most loving thing that anybody had ever seen. And it drew people in. And he proclaimed a gospel. He proclaimed a kingdom that's coming. And he says, I, I do it on your behalf. You don't come to me because you're good. As a matter of fact, we, we were so messed up that as he's dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. How could we proclaim a forgiveness like that unless we've experienced it? Christian, church, that is who you are. You are a rescued people that God has given an incredible mission to to reflect his character in the world and proclaim the excellencies of him who rescued us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you have called us as your people together to live as a holy nation on display for the world, to see not only the good, but to see our repentance and our need for rescue. Lord, we trust that you would continue daily to form us into the image of your Son, that you would make us like him, that we would know and make you known. We pray this all because of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.